so it's here's not heresy. It's come no, on. No, it's Harris' son. Wow! They gave us nothing but tradition and no argument. All they did was get on this stage, yell real loud, and set a straw man on fire. Okay, now this is I I, I was not impressed. <laughs> Respectfully, that sounds like a little bit of a dodge. I'm claiming victory. So where I come from, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Why is this so difficult? I'm not... This is the first word. Rumors. There was a rumor, not that Matt Chisholm is a flat earther, but there's a rumor that was spread on the Bible Bro Down that Jonathan Pritchett spreads the rumor that Matt Chisholm is a flat earther. I have not spread the rumor that he is a flat earther. I have talked about his fascination with ancient aliens and we make fun of it on our program, but I, I want to make this abundantly clear. Matt Chisholm is not a flat earther. Okay, so we were going to talk today about a particular issue. So let's go ahead and start talking a little bit about that. Yesterday when we were discussing uh, what we would do the show on today, we were talking about the nature of truth. Yes. And Pritchett got to thinking, uh, I wonder if there are any actually meaningful arguments brought by uh, opponents of the uh, absolute theory of truth the out there, theory. the objective yeah. the objective truth exists. And so we got to digging around and really didn't find anything. Nothing good. Um, but it gave me, it, it's an opportunity for us to talk a little bit about truth. Um, uh, there are various theories about the nature of truth. There is the coherence theory, yes. correspondence theory. Yes. Most of us, would, especially those of us who are Christians, would affirm a correspondence theory. In fact, most people probably affirm a correspondence theory. Yes, if theory. it corresponds with reality, it's true. Yeah, a correspondence theory says, well, let's go in reverse order. So what is coherence theory? The coherence theory, depending on the theory, may say something like, if something is coherent, it's true. Okay, that I think is it's true that whatever is true is going to be coherent, but it being coherent itself um, uh, is uh, is is not enough. So, for example, uh, the Lord of the Rings universe is known for being incredibly coherent. Now, I don't I I don't know that that's true, I, but let's just imagine for a second that every detail that that Tolkien was so good that there's not one single internal contradiction in the Lord of the Rings universe. Now, there probably is. If we really took the time to go through it, we could probably find something. But let's imagine that it was perfect. Does that mean that Middle-earth actually exists? No. Of course not. So coherence alone is not good enough. You need correspondence as well. And what we mean with correspondence is that, like Dr. Pritchett said, what is true is what corresponds to reality, yeah. which is almost a tautology to those of us who take the theory. Yeah. It's like you're saying it's true if it's true. Yeah, now, right? now, Christians have argued since people have been doing epistemology and framing it up these ways that the Bible itself uh, presupposes this kind of uh, correspondence theory. Yeah. And I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, well, there's they some things that people don't that... have to, until we got to later centuries where people became dum-dums, yeah. nobody had to say that. Right. It seemed obvious and intuitive, yeah. right? 
Yeah. So so we we take a correspondence theory. Now that do, that doesn't mean that coherence is not important, as I've been trying to say too. Uh, whatever is true and corresponds to reality is going to be coherent. Yeah. So what do we mean by coherent, Doctor Pritchett? That it does it's not just nonsensical or irrational is what we mean. Yeah, a simple way of thinking about it is there are no contradictions. Right. There's nothing in it that's contradictory. Or chaotic to where there's there's absolute I mean not that there's not chaos in the universe but chaotic in the sense that it could be random and and change at any given point without you know pre-warning or anything. Yeah. Like all of a sudden gravity start, stops working for 15 minutes and it just kicks on again. And then, you know, that makes me think yeah. about whenever I was uh, a kid and we would go to the Southern Baptist Convention because my father was a pastor. We'd go to the Southern Baptist Convention every year and um, we went to Houston. One year it was in Houston. And so we, my brother and I, because he could drive at the time, we went to, the, uh, to NASA. And I was so excited because my brother had told me that they have an anti-gravity room at NASA in Houston, because that's where the astronauts prepare. Is that where for they space. shot Armageddon? That scene <laughs> maybe, in Armageddon. Maybe. Yeah. There's not actually an anti-gravity room. No. Were you under the impression there was actually an anti-gravity room? I thought there was this thing in the movie Armageddon where they go into this big chamber and something. If happens. there really is an anti-gravity room, then we should know about that. But I don't think there is. I think the way they film movies and stuff is they go up into a plane, and the plane goes up and down. No, that's a parabolic plane deal, a parabolic dives. No, I'm talking about that, number one, a lot of times they practice underwater, but there was that other thing in the movie Armageddon that was supposed to be, you know, at NASA to where it was, I don't know, you don't remember that scene? They never filmed them inside the thing, but they filmed them going in, and said that's all we can do. Oh, okay, no, I, I don't remember that, but... All I've ever seen is people going underwater in a big swimming pool to learn how to do low gravity stuff. But okay. the the bottom line is whether or not the NASA thing corresponds to reality, uh, if it does correspond to reality, if there is an anti-gravity room, there won't be anything contradictory about that room. Okay. Right? Okay. So does anybody have any questions uh, for, okay, do we have souls? Did G- Did Jesus have a soul? Because reasons. Okay. Nick Quint asks, uh, yes, he was in every way human, and so, yes, he did have a soul, and it was not like the divine part of Jesus made up the human, so he had a fully human soul insofar as humans have souls. Yeah. Not not that he was a physical body in which a divine soul inhabited him. He's fully human and fully God, so his soul would be the like our soul insofar as being fully human. Uh, yes because he was fully man. Yeah. Okay, so... Now, if you don't believe man has a soul, if you're a physicalist for whatever dumb reason, uh, makes you think that people don't have souls, and you're going to say that Jesus didn't have a soul. Yeah. But we're not physicalists, because there's zero good reasons to be physicalists. Okay, so let's talk about physicalism for just a minute, because even though our audience, many of them have heard this a lot, we have a lot of new people lately, so let's go ahead and talk about it. Perhaps... Some of you wonder where, why Dr. Pritchett has a box sitting in front of him all the time that says Prime on it. Maybe you don't know what that's all about, or when he says something snarky, people call him Pritchett Prime. The reason for that is because a of few a, years ago, yeah. uh, Dr. Pritchett and I were talking about this very issue. And um, <clears throat> we were talking about Ray Kurzweiler, who is famous for inventing the Kurzweiler keyboard, Kurzweil keyboard that you sometimes see in churches uh, or other events. And he 
He also pioneered the voice recognition technology that's on your phone. He wrote a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines that I read, and in that book, he's, he's hoping that we can use MRI technology to map the human brain and then copy it on an artificial neural net. And then what his hope is, is that then your consciousness will, will transfer to that artificial neural net. Um, and you, you reject the claim that that's our, possible. I think it's intuitively and obviously false. Yeah. Because, and this is where Pritchett Prime came in, I said, let's imagine we've got Pritchett here, and this is Pritchett Actual. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we've built this artificial neural net and this android that is Pritchett Prime. I originally said Pritchett 1, so yes, Pritchett actually did name himself. He said, we'll call it Pritchett Prime. See, so, intelligence. <laughs> so, so, then, so, then, uh, so then I said, okay, so you've got this Pritchett Prime over here that has all of Pritchett Actual's memories, all of his experiences. He'll remember getting married and having children and everything. He'll even remember the moments before the experiment was carried out. Like the Michael Keaton movie. And if it worked, <laughs> if it worked, uh, let's imagine it works, all of that would be true. And, the, and the, the robot Pritchett would actually claim to be the real Pritchett actual. And, and in, we, yeah, he claimed to be it. I won't say believe it because that implies that he's self-aware, but he would claim to be Pritchett. The, the problem is Pritchett Actual is still standing over here looking across at Pritchett Prime going, no, no, that thing is demonic. That's not right. me. Kill it. Kill it now. Okay, so, uh, so this, this, uh, this idea that, that you could create this other thing that is exactly a copy of the first thing, and then that would be the first thing, that the original right. person doesn't work. Well, on Christian physicalism, the idea, and, and they admit a fair amount of mystery here, and some of the reasons that they give and explanations of how it could possibly work philosophically are really quite silly. And we have a video that is available only to patrons that goes into some of those different uh, things. But the idea uh, is here... Um, yeah, I wanted to go into detail about it, Nick. I see Nick saying you don't have to go into detail. We we love going into detail. Yeah, about we have. I understand why you yet. don't want me to go right. into detail about it. Yeah, we haven't gotten to making fun of it yet. <laughs> yeah. So so but the 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 idea is so if you die and you're so Christian physicalists just believe we don't have yeah, an immaterial like, soul like atheists. Yeah. Well, that's true. Guilt by association yeah. fallacy. So, just like atheists and naturalists and people who don't believe that God exists at all and are terrible people. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, just, but they believe that you're just a bag of meat. You're just a physical body. Yes. Now, um, they might object to me saying just, but that's what they're saying. So, so then the so then the question there is, what happens at the resurrection? So, um, when since we only have a Pritchett actual, let's say that Pritchett actual Jonathan Pritchett sitting next to me dies, his body decays, and goes back to the dust of the earth. If there is no immaterial soul that continues on, then whenever the resurrection happens, uh, and God recreate. It's not a resurrection, really. It's a recreation. Now you can drown it in theological language and call it a resurrection, but it's a recreation of that physical structure, that brain, yeah. all those things. And in that sense, it's not a resurrection. That is a copy of the original. Yes. But in what sense is that still the same conscious experience of Pritchett? Yeah. Now, now, now if you want to say that the conscious experience was somehow transferred immaterially to the new Pritchett body, then you're just saying that so, there's an immaterial soul. Right. Now, Nancy Murphy, I think that was her name, Nancy Murphy. Yeah. 
she tried to argue that, well, maybe God can preserve the data from this brain cell or something. That's not good enough. The data from the brain cell is like copying your brain and putting it on an artificial neural network. Or it can preserve the actual thing, which I don't see that being... If there's an actual thing that can be transferred that's not natural... Yeah. Then that's a soul. Or or the natural thing can be preserved somehow by God in a special something. Yeah, and it actually gets worse. But that but now you're just you're you're going the wrong way with Occam's razor, you know. You're you're making it more complicated than it needs to be, I think, with, with this idea that you're you're preserving stuff because the Maccabean martyrs, for example, they wondered what would happen, you know, People wonder what would happen. Is God? Wh- these people are basically burnt alive and reduced to ash, right? Mm-hmm. What gets resurrected? And the answer from secular Judaism was, well, yeah, God can still recreate that person. Don't worry about martyrs who are burnt alive and reduced to ash. Yeah, because we all go back to dust. Right. Right. I mean, go open a cast. Our physical dust. bodies. Right. I mean, we yeah. you, to dust you shall return. So, whoa, our studio is falling apart. <laughs> Go ahead. What is... Uh, <laughs> to dust you shall return. <laughs> right. Uh, so, the, the, the simplest and best explanation is substance dualism. Yeah. And that there is an immaterial aspect to you that God uh, places into your resurrected body uh, at the new... Uh, heavens and earth. So Yeah, that's right. I, I don't... <laughs> I, I think Christian physicalism is like... People think, well, what what can we talk about that's different? And so they come up with this. Well, my biggest problem with it is the continuity issue. It really is. And, you know, even some of the physicalists that I know, and I I don't want to name them, and I'm not talking about Nick Quint alone, uh, I don't want to name these people because I don't know if they're okay with me saying what we've said in private conversations, but one well-known Christian physicalist said to me about the biblical data, I said, so are you a physicalist because you believe that the Bible teaches it? And he said, yeah. And I said, so would that be your, like, you think that the Bible really does indicate? And and he said, I think the biblical data could go either way. Right. That's what I think, too. So if the biblical data could go either way, then we're left with, uh, we're left with, like, if we we call that neutral and set it aside, we're left with the philosophical arguments. And the biggest problem that I have with it. Uh, aside that I don't know that the Bible could go either way, well, is is that, hold on, I, is the continuity of identity issue that we've been discussing. How is it that I am the same me across different stratas of physical bodies yeah. if nothing transfers? Well, here's why I think it could go either way. If you, if you can insist that, that you don't have to posit a substance for every vocabulary for life or whatever else... Um, because what they'll argue is, okay, so the blood cries out from the earth. Are, are we now, is that its own ontological substance no. beyond just... So, so what they're going to say is, every time you say, you know, if you say heart, soul, mind, and strength, now is is the proverbial heart, is now that... that a, no, but you don't have to do that. You can go right, to... No, I'm saying this is how they argue. I'm not saying this I'm, is how... Well, yeah, but that they're Don't mistake against, me for their team. I'm not on their team. They're arg- if they argued that, they'd be arguing against one of the weaker forms of it. Uh, now, let me go to a difficult passage, and yeah. that is where um, Samuel comes up out of, you know, the, the, you know, the Witch of Endor conjures up this, this, is it really him? Is it not really him? Yeah. If it's not if it is really him, 
are we to imagine that his physical body crawled up or was this a spirit? Yeah. And, and here's the, another problem with this well, whole ball of wax. People thought that Jesus was a ghost. So, I mean, obviously they had a concept of... Well, right. Here's, and they thought that that was just... Yeah. Here's the problem with this whole thing is we already know that disembodied spirits do exist. If you're any kind of Christian, it's system dependent because God himself is spirit, right? So you've already got at least one uh, spiritual being without a physical body. So why... Is it a stretch at all to posit that we have a spiritual aspect? Uh, Dylan Simmons asked a question a moment yeah, ago. Uh, we're not. Keep, we're doing terrible. At we, well, it's on this little tiny screen. Yeah. For those of you who are just joining, we are doing a live stream and uh, not a live stream really, but kind of on Pritchett's phone because uh, something wasn't working right on the computer version. In so. your debate with Matt, you began. I'm not reading this for the people who can read it. I'm reading it for you. Okay. <laughs> In your debate with Matt, you began to question whether he believed in determinism or free will. It seemed as if you had a whole line of questioning for either position he held to, if he would have affirmed one or the other. What were you going to say if he said free will? What were you going to ask him if he said determinism? So people are probably sick of this topic now, but I'll answer the question. Um, so I had two premises. Premise one, if God does not exist, then libertarian freedom does not exist. Premise two, libertarian freedom does exist, therefore God exists. So well, all I was trying to do, I knew that in the past he had affirmed compatibilism, which is determinism, as we all know, and it, but I wanted the audience to hear it all. But if he had somehow changed that I, and I wasn't aware of it and had said, oh, no, I've changed recently and I do affirm libertarian free will, then what that would have done is made my argument even stronger, or, or it's, it wouldn't affect the strength of the argument, but it would make it easier to talk to him about it, because premise two would would be conceded, basically. Yeah. Because premise two is that libertarian freedom does exist. So what I'm trying to do in asking him what he affirms is to figure out which of these premises is going to get the most action. Since he disaffirmed premise two, since he didn't believe we had libertarian freedom... Oh, I'm sorry. He didn't disaffirm premise two. He said, I don't know, even though we all know he clearly affirms determinism and compatibilism. And that's an interesting part of the debate because he kept trying to say, well, I'm just saying, how could you ever know? How could you ever know? I said, I'm not asking that. I'm asking, what do you affirm? Yeah. But for those who know his, his deal, they know that what he was trying to do there was to never shoulder any burden of proof. Because if he said, I affirm determinism, then I could have easily, and I wasn't even going to do this, but I could have easily said to him, Prove to me that determinism is true. Why yeah. should I believe determinism is true? But to answer the question, all I was trying to do is figure out and let the audience know he, he affirms determinism. Yeah. He doesn't affirm libertarian freedom. If he if he did affirm libertarian freedom, then premise two is conceded, and all we have to do is focus on premise one. Uh, because he didn't do that, we never got to premise one. Uh, we only stuck with premise two, and I don't think that he ever uh, said anything that substantially knocked down premise two. So yeah. Debating opponents who won't take any positions on anything because they they know that somebody can have some sort of criticism that you may not be able to answer, it is a little bit cowardly in my opinion. Well, the thing about it is, why are you debating? I mean, I, there were a lot of atheists that say... No, I know why he's debating. He wants to show that we don't have reasons to believe in most of the things that we believe in. We don't have sufficient reason, And that's, that's his shtick. That's what he wants to communicate to the audience. That's fine, but be a lecturer. If you're going to debate... 
you need to take a position. And if you're saying, I don't know, and a lot of the atheists were saying, but that's the honest position is to just say, I don't know. Okay, you're right. That is honest. If you really don't know, if you genuinely don't know, then that's fine. That's honest to say, I don't know. But then why are you standing on this stage with me right now is the question. Brian asks a good question. He has wondered how the... Con we actually addressed this in the Prime episode. I believe in the soul, but I've often wondered if the concept of the soul would work in the transporter on Star Trek. Can a soul go through a pattern buffer? The answer is Star Trek killed their cast members Every episode when yeah. they stepped into a transporter, don't they give? Don't they bring up better topics to talk about than what we talk about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all you find in Star Trek is just the slaughter of of people on a regular basis and reput together. I mean, yeah, because because once you the, the pattern, but for basically reduces you to the most finest of particles, right, and then reassembles you wherever your destination is. And we argue that that kills you, and whatever's reassembled is a copy, and the soul's gone. That's what I think, yeah. but I don't think I could be dogmatic about... I, I don't think I could be dogmatic about Star Trek. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could be dogmatic but about if it. it were, because could because it is the, it is exactly the same physical matter, right? Yes. That, go, that went in, that comes out the other side on the planet or on the ship. And what in what sense... Does the soul supervene on the body? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. But I would, but I'll tell you this if I was on the Starship Enterprise, uh, can you board the ship manually or do you have to transport no, onto the ship? Seriously? You yeah, asked this question? Okay, there's a shuttle bay. Okay, there's yeah. Patches yeah. everywhere. What are you talking about? I mean, about? When, we, when it was first built, if I got on or if I boarded via yeah, a shuttle, hatches, I'm not have... going on that transporter. You're not? Because I do in my bones believe and that Star Captain Trek, Kirk the, yeah. was a completely different Captain Kirk by the end of the series than he was at the beginning. Yeah, so, uh, but that brings up another interesting question related to the nature of the soul. Yeah. Um, and that is, what was it? I had it just in, in a moment ago. Oh, yeah. So we say, so if we're saying on physicalism, you're a completely different person uh, after the transport, uh, because even though it's the same, the, well, because even though it's the same physical matter, we have no reason to believe that, that the immaterial soul transferred. All right, here's the thing. So uh, when they say, now I, I don't know this to be true, but everybody says it and I've never heard it contested that every seven to 10 years, every cell in your body cycles out and you have new cells. Yeah. Okay, that means that you have a, physic, a completely different physical body than you did 10 years ago, mm -hmm. if that's true. So on Christian physicalism, how is that the same person? That, that continues. Now, they would say it is... Because it's a gradual thing. It's that, not, yeah, it's they... Not, you go ahead. You're not 100% replaced every seven years. It's a little bit from here and a little bit from there over time. And by that seven-year period, you've gone through a phasing, but it's not necessarily all at once. So there's still... You have to have a new physical... There's new mix with the old. It's not... A, you know, right. Yeah. It, you have to... It, it's like um, you have a... I forget the terminology they use, but there is a physical causal connection between the new and the old, like a handing yeah. off. Right. Okay, that's because of that commitment to that, some people, and I don't remember, I went through this all last summer, I don't remember the names of the people that wrote the journal articles. I know Glenn Peoples, 
uh, on his podcast does a bunch on this. But some of the theories of how this works mm-hmm. is that with the resurrection is that when you die, invisibly, th- your body is replaced at the point of death with a, a, a different physical body. Yeah. And even though it's invisible and no one sees it, the, there's like a there's like a transporter. There's like an exchanging of cells instantly and and invisibly, so that now your you your same physical body is, I guess, with the Lord or whatever. I'm not making this up. You can go read this stuff, and that to me is absurd. Yeah, uh, there's no evidence for it, and all this to get around. And I think I know what happened. They're like, well, these Greek philosophical ideas impacted Christian thinking such that now we've got this idea of the immaterial soul. No, Christianity already had a disembodied, as I said earlier, non-physical spiritual father, God the Father, and your attempt to try to get away from all things things Greco-Roman in order to avoid this is only making it impossible to have any kind of logical explanation of yeah, and the continuity all, of identity. And we've talked about that before, that the, by the first century, that's all a big uh, mishmash of ideas, whether there's no pure Jewish thought versus pure Greek thought. That's all one big million. So Nick is trying to get us away from yeah, this well, topic by well, asking a question I, but I answer that, that you question. should answer. I yeah, answer how should question. a seminary foster an atmosphere of intellectual and theological freedom? Let me set this up. This probably comes on the heels of a poll that you recently created that said something mm-hmm. like if uh, professors have to sign a very detailed uh, set of doctrinal positions, it makes it very difficult to for them uh, to think freely and and freely express their opinions and yeah. I'll say this or deal fairly with contrary data to their position and, and I'll say that when we go to get the consensus of scholars on a particular issue we almost have to discount them because we can't know that their opinions aren't tainted mm-hmm. by the doctrinal statement right yeah, yeah. oh and, and of course there's there's a spectrum to this okay mm-hmm. so if you are at Westminster Theological Seminary, obviously there's there's one thing that you have to affirm, right? You can't think outside of those parameters. Whereas like a Southern Baptist Seminary, it's a broader doctrinal statement. Mm-hmm. The Baptist Faith and the Message, well, some of the seminaries have more detailed statements and stuff. Um, so, so like David Allen, his job doesn't depend on whether or not he affirms limited atonement or... Uh, uh, unlimited atonement, general atonement. Uh, he can affirm both and still keep his job, right? Mm-hmm. So David Allen is reliable on that because you can find. Uh, so if you're if you're teaching at a General Baptist college or, or seminary, they're they're obligated to affirm a general atonement, right? Uh, so you check that guy's work against someone like David Allen, who's not obligated to do it, right? Uh, but different seminaries have different parameters. Um, but I think if you have any parameters beyond the essentials of the historic doctrine, you're going to come into some issues where Michael Kona hasn't said names, but he has publicly said quite often that he knows of scholars who bury their research because they don't want to lose their job hmm. at certain seminaries. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, as far as uh, theological freedom and academic, it depends on what kind of seminary you are. Liberal one uh, seminary, uh, you can basically affirm everything, including they'll have 
some conservatives there, like a token conservative or two. Um, now, Trinity is not the kind of uh, institution where if you deny the bodily resurrection, you can work here. Uh, but Trinity, I think, has a very minimal doctrinal statement uh, where it's basically three creeds and then about uh, 10 or 11 points uh, that kind of restates what you would find in the, in the creeds anyway. So I think a minimal mere Christianity sort of statement allows for the most theological freedom without being irresponsible. Um, because I think it is irresponsible to let historically conservative orthodox institutions fall to liberalism because the mission of this is not to train people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The, the mission of this church is to train people who proclaim the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. So there are some—it's not like Trinity is <clears throat> has so much academic freedom that you can be anything and teach here. Yeah. But it is— I think Trinity is probably the most free academic environment for conservatism that you'll find anywhere. Um, and I, I think the answer to Nick's question is the more minimal your doctrinal statement is, the more freedom you have within those confines of, uh, of the doctrinal statement. Cause every, every sounds so, good. Yeah. So that, that's I, I, I think it's hilarious that the more detailed the statement, the less freedom there I, is. I think it's hilarious that there are a bunch of people sitting here watching that poster basically. And that's all. And they're staying with us. Uh, but that's good. It's good for the show. So we have a couple more questions that I looked through. So Kendra wants to know if there was a house fire and you had to save only three of your books, uh, which of those would you save? And then there's a question from uh, Russell Crawford, which was, um, uh, have we ever experienced anything inexplicable and supernatural? So uh, you start with the book question, and I'll answer, and then I'll start with the supernatural. Okay, so question. thankfully, if I had a house fire, my most of my best works are in my office. <laughs> yeah. So the three books that I would Same save, uh, the three books that I would save from the house would be, um, I would save my nice uh, Douglas Adams trilogy which is actually five books in one volume mm -hmm. i would save that because that's at home mm -hmm. i would probably save uh, my wife's bible but my bibles are here of course i only use my phone for my but bible. you're not supposed to think that way you're thinking that all books you own including all bibles i don't think she wants to know about the bibles obviously you'd save the bibles but no, if I, wouldn't. You, but I would save my wife's <laughs> bible because i bought that for her as a gift okay Right. Take that, okay, aside from that. Well, I mean, I'd what say three books? The, the Douglas Adams okay. book. I would probably save uh, our, our nice uh, Edgar Allan Poe thing. Uh, it's a, like all his collections. It's one of those really nice Barnes & Noble ones, you know. Uh, I like it. Uh, and then I would save our complete, our Oxford complete works of Shakespeare that was also a gift to my wife. Now all of these books are replaceable. Don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but which, but that's not. Let me augment her question. Yeah, you're on a desert island. You're going to be there forever, and you're going to die there. You only get three books, and the Bible isn't one of them. What books? There you go, Kendra. I know how to fix this. Uh, <laughs> hmm. So, what are my top three favorite yeah. books of all time? I'll tell you right now. Let me go ahead and answer since you're having trouble. Okay. The three books that I would save are these three right here. 
for the camera, these three right here. This is the uh, C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy, and the reason I would save those is because those books, probably more than any other book I own, are meaningful to me because Dr. Pritchett, I'm not saying this to be syrupy, it's true. <laughs> Dr. Pritchett bought them for me last Christmas, uh, and it meant a lot. No, it was for your birthday. And I'd, okay, and I would, I would save those. And it's handy because they're in a box set, so it'd be easy yeah. to grab them. And there's three of them. So there you go. I would probably, I would probably grab. I'm not sure they're interested enough for you to take this long. Yeah, <laughs> answering. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't know. I, I know how to answer the other. So it'd be question. core facts, evangelistic apologetics, and death is a doorway. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, I, but right. I, I probably, I would probably save uh, Plutarch's Lives. Uh, okay. off my shelf. I would probably in say... In case somebody else doesn't save them, we can't lose them to history. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, then what would I want to sit around and read uh, over and over again on a desert island? Is that right? true? Or yeah, you, it's it's fascinating and it's inexhaustible. You really want to sit around and yeah, read say Yeah, I would save... Uh, I, would even, I know everyone hates Augustine. That's not a Calvin. I, Augustine's great. Uh, City oh, yeah. of God. Yeah. Uh, I would save that. Because you're... Because you're the single, because that's the only way you're connected to a city out there on a desert island, right? Perhaps, yeah. but I mean, it's it's a good read. It's yeah. it's long, so it's gonna. And uh, because of my dad, um, it has nothing to do with uh, a seafood cookbook. Somebody put a seafood cookbook. Yeah, <laughs> well, that would be help. That would yeah. be useful. But probably uh, Don Quixote. Okay. Right, just because it would remind me of my dad, because one of my dad's favorite—not because he loved the book, but because he loved windmills. No, he loved uh, maybe sorry, mom, Sophia Loren, but he loved the man yeah. from La Mancha. Yeah, right. The the movie. I don't know. Have you not seen it? Mm, I don't think so. What's wrong? You need to go see it. Okay. Uh, anyway, so the, the the book Don Quixote would remind me of my dad because he was a big fan of the man. All right, so let's move on to the next question. Yeah. So the d Russell Crawford asked, "Have have you ever experienced anything inexplicably supernatural?" I think I'm characterizing this right. And for me, the simple answer is n not obviously so. No, but uh, that said, the closest—I mean, it's all explainable. Mm -hmm. I can explain everything that I've experienced, but. I I have had these moments, and I've talked about this before, where there's been something really bad has happened in my life. Um, at least on one occasion, something really bad happened. And in a moment of absolute and utter despair, there was this undeniable sense of the presence of God. Now, could a naturalist chalk that up to, you know, a dopamine dump or something going on in my brain? Perhaps. But to me, I remember in that moment saying to myself, Braxton, remember the way you feel right now, because beyond all evidences, arguments, and everything else, you are certain, like Cartesian certainty in this moment of the truth of not just God, but the truth of Jesus. And so I can't, it's not inexplicable. But I do believe it was supernatural, and for me, that's as close as it comes. I've never, I've never seen anything. And you know, one of the reasons that I'm into apologetics is because I have struggled with doubt in the past, not so much anymore, but in the past. And I think that, uh, you know, I used to think when I would walk through a, a, a church sanctuary in the middle of the night alone, 
that is like the scariest place in the world in the middle of a church <laughs> sanctuary at night. And um, I used to worry like, oh my gosh, what if I saw like something, like a demon or something? And then I thought, you know what? If I saw something demonic, <laughs> that would be the worst mistake the enemy ever made because you talk about certainty. I mean, visual certainty. So uh, maybe that's why it's never happened for me. But I've never had anything that was inexplicable and obviously undeniably supernatural, except for an internal awareness that a naturalist could explain, probably. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Uh, The earth opens up and swallows the people at Korah, right? Yes. Now, you can explain what happened. Maybe an earthquake and the ground fell in or whatever. Yeah. But the timing of it right. is what gets your attention. So I don't know if there's... So when my dad passed away, we were in a hospice, okay? And we were all around him. We were all singing or whatever. And then when he finally just drew his last breath uh, and died, okay? Now this hospice, the the door to his room shut, okay? And then there was a room out to the outside, Right, that had a heavy door with one of those you have to push in. Uh, the, the there's like a bar across. Mm-hmm. You push in the bar and you open it up, and it's it, but it latches when it's closed. And I, I swear, it was latched. Everyone thought it was latched, but when he finally expired, blow, both doors blew open. Now I, I I'm sure that if it wasn't latched, maybe some sort of combination of doors can can. Sh- but I don't understand how you, how it pushed in the bar and unlatched. But but even if there's a natural explanation for that, the timing of it, like right when he passed, and I, we weren't the only ones in the room. Uh, Joel Winters, uh, the worship pastor at the time of C- at Cedar Heights, I think he's at a different church now. Uh, my cousin Aaron, uh, other people, my mom, we were in the room, and it was incredible that that happened. That these doors blew open and wind came through the room. Yeah, the timing of it, even if you could explain it right. somehow, the timing of but it. But that was, door, that door to the outside was heavy. It's like one of those fire doors. You know, you have to push in the bar and open it, you know, but it was latched closed. But I don't know that that wind that we all felt was enough to blow the door open, but the door opened. And so, again, I don't, sure the naturalistic explanation, fine, but it was the timing of it that really in one sense, freaked us all out, but in another sense, brought us all comfort. Go figure. Well, amen. So I, I don't, I don't know if that's if that counts um, explicitly supernatural, but it was, ex- but it seemed like a divine encounter nonetheless, right? So, well, that's amazing, and I see that Kurt Jarris is here, which means that he's going to make fun of our uh, poor technological situation, but. Um, Nick Quint wants to know: Is the Soterio ban officially yeah, over? Yeah, it's dead. It's um, you Billy know, Winland thought it was a terrible idea anyway because people want to talk about it. Um, can we have a review of James White? Uh, I think James White is a terrible exegete and an even worse metaphysician. That's my review of James White. There are better sources of uh, information out there on everything that he talks about. So my review of James White is, don't bother, I think he's incompetent. You know, you don't get, he said, if not, I'd be settled for a few moments of you being all Pritchett Prime. Yeah, I just called James White incompetent. I mean, after his last, just going off the rails over Leighton Flowers with his fallacious-filled rant and 
uh, calling him a coward and all this stuff. Done. There, there, there's no re- Unless he publicly apologizes for his behavior, I have no reason to show him any respect or deference whatsoever, regardless of what people make of me for saying that out loud. Simply, I, I don't have any respect for the man. And I don't, I never really respected much of his uh, scholarship either. I mean, I like James White. I, I know you do, but the, the but the I don't like him crying. on soteriology. I like him when he does other stuff. Like what? Islam, Dave Wood says, he's, David Wood, who knows what he's talking about, says he's not that great <laughs> on Islam. So what, what else you got? I, contra what you have said recently, I think for a guy like him, to go up against Bart Ehrman on the manuscript and history, uh, I think he held his own. I can't say he clearly lost. Well, I can. Well, I just I was impressed with that because that's not his specific area. I thought that was great. Well, so, I, I well, think here's how you know he lost. He thought about pursuing a Ph.D. in Islamic studies and then stopped uh, and decided to pursue a Ph.D. in textual criticism. And then I think it's because he got hammered. Uh, by Bart Ehrman on that very topic. Uh, he bit off more than he could chew going up against Bart Ehrman. But again, and, and you might say that that's, that's just you, you don't like James White. No, number one, he just said he just stumped back on, well, we have different starting presuppositions about the Bible. And second, James White speaks impeccable German, knows German, reads, writes, really? speaks German. Very good. When asked about... German scholarship on textual criticism. I've never read any of it, but I'm not debating the issue with Bart Ehrman. But if you, but he, James White's like, no, I've never, I've never heard or read th- those people. And I'm thinking, okay, that just shows you don't know the field that you're talking about. Because in other areas, we have to read German scholarship, whether it's translated or not, in certain fields. So I mean, it's just kind of like. You can knock this off the table. For 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 someone who's competent in German not to be prepared for that kind of stuff, I thought it just made yeah. him look like he didn't really know. Uh, See, so, the, the thing is, you don't get yeah. as primed as you used to. Like, we have videos from two years ago where you'd be talking. I just gave him a Mickey Mouse C-3PO so that if he could get mad enough, he could knock it off the desk because that's what used to happen. No, here's my – but he asked about James White. And ever since yeah. that rant from, from, from his video against Leighton Flowers that I thought went too far – no, I'll just say what I really think. I've never been convinced by, by if you want good reform scholarship, you go to our Facebook group and I give yeah. a list of recommended Calvinist scholars. Yeah. But he he makes terrible exegetical cases and then he he will start spouting off all these crazy metaphysics that he reads into the text and says, see? And I'm like, no, don't see. All right, see. so so now that was great. Yeah. Good job. Well done. So I just don't think he knows what he's talking about. Then we come to Andrew asks a question, asks a question about how do you get people to be evangelistic that aren't wanting to be evangelistic and get comfortable talking to others about their faith. And, you know, here, here's the thing. Whenever I go to these conferences and speak, I usually talk about the inclusion of evangelism and apologetics, and I always tell them right from the start, well, it's difficult because on the one hand, you're wanting to take this over here that people are scared to death of and don't think they can do, and then you're giving them this over here that people don't think they can do and they're scared of, evangelism and apologetics, and mm-hmm. you're putting them together and saying, how about this new thing? Right. That's terrifying to people. Um, so I think the same thing is true for evangelism just in general that's true for the inclusion of apologetics in evangelism, which is people are typically scared of two things. They're scared they're going to say something wrong and maybe yeah. confirm someone in their unbelief, or they're scared they're not going to know how to answer something. And the, the, the best I've seen is 
um, encouraging people that if they don't know the answer to something, uh, then just say so. And if they're giving an answer and they're not sure, say, I'm not sure. And just, I've said it many times on this show, just say, I don't know. And then, and then go find the answer and come back and continue the conversation with them. As long as you're willing to say, I don't know, there's nothing to be scared of. And I think encouraging people that way is one of the best things. And also encouraging them that, um, you know, we should be evangelistic. Yeah, I mean, at, at minimum, you could invite people to just come to church, you know. Yeah, but, and that's fine. If it's an evangelistic church. You should do that, but I think we I should mean, go further. Uh, we, we, well, I mean, you know, we were asked a similar question, and I think people should be be willing to have conversations, but, I mean, for the most part, uh, I don't think every single member in the church needs to be intentional about evangelism 24-7. I just don't. I think well, that, I don't think any— I agree with Paul, mind your own business I, and, and, and keep I quiet. I don't think any, but, any individual in the church, even the most skilled evangelist, is going to be evangelistic 24-7. Except your dad. When any but, restaurant I've ever eaten at, your, your dad, the waitress, the hostess— but I think the gas every, station attendant, it, your dad is intentionally evangelistic. I, I think every Christian every should, should be aware of spiritual conditions around them. Yeah. Uh, try to be aware and look for indications about the spiritual situation of the people in their lives uh, and the people that they meet. And I think they should be capable of doing it. Now, uh, I, I'm more staunch about this than I know you are. Yeah. However, I will say this much. Some people have, you know, every, you know, lot, anybody can teach, provided they know something. But then there is teacher, right? Right. And, and in the same way, anybody can be evangelistic, provided they know how they got saved and are saved. But then there's evangelist. And for those of us who are evangelists, I cannot get comfortable sitting next to someone for a long period of time if I don't, if I know or don't believe that they're a Christian, without addressing that, and I know that's not everybody. As an evangelist, I feel like that should be everybody, but I realize that I'm an evangelist. Um, Brother Alvin Pollard, who died last fall and was my children's church pastor, he often—I remember one time he said, "You know, uh, often I do share my faith, say with a waitress or somebody. Sometimes I don't, and I got really convicted about that until, or felt guilty. I won't say he got convicted until I realized that." sometimes maybe I just don't experience the prompting of the Spirit in a particular moment. Yeah. And I thought, that's fair enough. What do you think about Daniel? Should it be dated to the 2nd century B.C.? Which parts of it? Are you talking about the additions to Daniel that are in the Apocrypha? Sure. Talking about the original Daniel, do you think it should be dated into the 2nd century? You're the biblical scholar here. <laughs> uh, well, all I can say, one of the books that I, I agree with, your, you ought to get, uh, <laughs> ought to get his dad's, commentary on Daniel. He goes off about this, but actually, no, I don't. Um, I think there's enough uh, there that you can... That, uh, the, the, the thing is, what, what, how do you, when you think about composition of biblical manuscripts, including the, uh, pro, you know, the prophetic books in the ancient world, but no, I think that uh, whatever its final form is, I think the bulk of the content of the canonical book of Daniel that's in that you have, I, I think there's enough there that 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 uh, that you can date it. Uh, the I, I hate to say the tradition of it back to Daniel, but th- I'll say it like that. Okay, here's a last question. Because well, because uh, prophets had 
prophetic circles. They, you don't talk about it, but in the, when you study, you know, pro- prophets, they had there was guilds that you know there's prophet guilds. There were schools for training, all of these other things, right? Um, that's why the, the famous statement from Amos, uh, I'm not the, a prophet or the son of, the pro- of a prophet. You're like, but wait a minute, he's one of the minor prophets. How is he not a prophet? Well, the background to that statement is that he's not the son of a particularly prominent prophet, or did he? is he a member of a guild, or did he go to one of these prophetic schools, because they actually had these things mm-hmm. in Israel, okay? Mm-hmm. And so, but so every prophet would also have kind of an entourage or a, a, a com, uh, when I say community, it sounds like what the liberals say about things. But but he he would have an entourage of people. So people ask me, did Amos write Amos, or did the or did Amos's followers? And my answer to that question, yes, to all of the above. So I, I don't see why I would. Uh, but I think there's enough there with Daniel that you can date it. Uh, prior to the second century BCE. Okay. Last question. And it's in two parts. Um, Eric Hernandez asks, who cares what Eric asked? Is, is there what doctrine? And he's, he's assuming we're, it's a doctrine we do not affirm. Which doctrine would you do away with? Like you could just ask God and he would just, that doctrine doesn't exist anymore. There's nobody teaching that or, or, and what doctrine, true doctrine. No, no, no. Not true doctrine. What I think he means, because he said obviously maybe one you don't affirm. So what thing are is a doctrinal position that you would do away with? Like for example, would you do away with Calvinism? Um, would you do away with open theism? Would you do away with oh, what, what see, thing? See, what what doctrinal position would you do away with? And is there one that you think is particularly damaging? What would I do away with? Probably cessationism. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, do you think that one is particularly damaging? On the whole, I would say that yeah. Um, I, I think he means, and I and I'm trying to think about it for myself because obviously there are a lot of things. Is it damaging for you? I'm saying, is it damaging for the church global? Yeah. I, th- I think there church universal. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of things that are that are damaging that are clearly false doctrine but i i'm imagining that he means that are within within the the realm realm of orthodoxy yes um yeah that's tough yeah so for me cessationism and i think it's also the most damn calvinism is a problem in churches denominations like the sbc where you can be one or the other and it doesn't matter so would some kind of Mm works-based salvation I, i don't i don't know it's a really good question because yeah. people often ask what book of the Bible if you found out one of them was not, you know, shouldn't be in the canon. But I've never had anyone ask that question. I, I would want to really get this right because this is a powerful, if God asks me what I get to choose, one doctrine to do away with, that's a big question. You mean like everyone becomes this? Everyone stops being that anyway. Right. And mine, yeah. I would say cessationist. And I, bear in mind, I say this as someone who has no cool superpowers as far as speaking in tongues or healing or prophecy or any of that. I have none of that, me personally, but I still think oh, cessationism man. is a huge problem. Why not egalitarianism? Just wipe that off the planet. Because if You don't that, think it's that dangerous? Well, there are a lot of people damaging. in my life who are very convinced of it, of, of egalitarianism. And I do not, for the life, and I said we weren't going to talk about this. He sits next to me and stares, wow, you're so, 
how do you how do you believe that, Pritchett? No, I, I know how you get there. I've read the literature on it. The thing about it is, I just it's so I so can't bring myself to actually believe that's what's being said that I can't get there. But the very fact that the people there are people like you um, who really are convinced of this and Keener and others. Uh, where's Witherington on this? Egalitarian? Very, oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, so, okay, so that's, that's on it. so that is, I mean. So when all the best New Testament scholars are, egal- and yes, the best New Testament So I wouldn't throw scholars. it out. I mean, I don't want to just do away with something just to be lazy. We're talking about doing away with something that is really dangerous. Yeah. Or, or is dangerous in some measure. I don't know. I mean, if we expand it outside of orthodoxy, it's easy. Yeah. Oh, that. But that. I think. I don't think he. I don't think. Uh, Eric he wouldn't ask that question. Easy question. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's get rid of you know just deism out of Christianity. Advice: If your current church will not allow you to teach apologetics, whatever. I said those were the last questions. Well, I, but I, he's just giving advice. If your church won't let you do apologetics, then what? Leave that church. Or engage your gifting in a church. Provide a reason. Yes, it's personal. Um, yeah, I say. Uh, I don't, I, I don't, I'd leave the church because I would never be a member of a church that didn't allow everyone in the church to exercise their gifts within the church. Yeah. If you're, a, if your church is saying no, no, no to teaching a small group, this apologetic stuff, uh, I don't, I don't know that, that I would stay at that church. And I don't know that I would actually recommend anyone else stay at that church. Yeah. All right. Well, Prime all right. says. <laughs> all right, so now we've come to this moment. We've been yeah. at this for 55 minutes. We should probably bid you all adieu. Thank you for being a part of this. This was fun, but we need I to actually it. wrap up. the. What, yeah, was the so, what was the one good thing about, uh, or, or the one best case against objective truth? And and they like we said at the beginning, it was all bad, but but... The best that I found... That things are only true relative to something else. Yes. But that amounted to an equivocation fallacy. That if 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 the truth that Braxton Hunter is uh, six foot... About. Is relative to Braxton Hunter being six foot and it's not... that That's that's relativism. And that's just an equivocation fallacy on the word. And I thought, wow, why would we even yeah, argue? Yeah, there's, not, there's, I mean, there's nothing, nothing there. If, if, if a real objective truth does not exist then talking about it is meaningless. Yes. You can't even disaffirm it. Right. So, all right. So uh, check out the other episode or other shows on the Trinity Commission. Steve Gregg's Narrow Path, the Bible Brodown with Matt Chisholm and Billy Winland, And uh, we have Leighton Flowers, of course, for Soteriology. I'm having to think about these things. Leighton Flowers on Soteriology 101. And, yes, there are new shows coming and new programs coming. Uh, and we will be happy and, to announce them with great fanfare when they... And if you're listening to this as an audio-only recording, we uh, would appreciate any support you can give us, financial support. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash trinityradio. And if you're watching, you uh, not you that are watching on Facebook, but <laughs> those of you who are watching this as a YouTube video, you can click up here somewhere, yes. and there should be a thing that lets you go to a place that lets you give And stuff. Brax is going to edit out everything, so you should have watched the Facebook Live thing. I don't think I'm going to edit He's going to edit at, you know, the studio falling apart around us. No, that's great. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to leave it. 
Talk, um, yeah. But if we took down all the pieces of that uh, plank uh, shiplap wall over there and slowly put in new pieces of shiplap gradually over time. Would it be the same shiplap? Would it be the same shiplap wall? Not at all. All right. Uh, Thanks for sticking with us, and we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Yes. This is the last word. Sin and excuses. When a man falls into a sinful snare and cannot shake it off, he associates with others ensnared in a like manner. They become a community of ignorantians moving up and down the street, in and out of shops with the equivalence of bear traps clasped around their ankles, teeth beneath the skin. Each dragging their own snares, limping as they go, they conduct their business and attend dinner parties. Others look on them with confusion and try to convince them of their maladies, but they speak with baffling condescension. They've grown to love their snares. They decorate them and compare them and pity those who do not have them. All the while, they are slowly dying. These ensnared men and women who knew the scriptures best find security in the community. They look around them and say, ah, this must be the truly enlightened spirituality. Regress they have back to the toddler. In such a state and with such biblical knowledge, the twisting and grid crafting becomes most intricate. Men who know the Bible the best and fall in with men who live it the least are capable of twisting scripture softly, which is truly the worst. like more content click here and keep watching bible studies click up here and finally we want you to subscribe we need more subscribers so click here